Testament Church. I was on autopilot there for a minute, reading off the announcement sheet, and uh, failed to mention that today there's a town hall meeting. There is not the uh, foster care and adoption uh, meeting that was planned. Hopefully all of you received an email, but in God's kindness and His mercy, there is a prospective facility that God has put on... uh, put before us. It's in Glenrock, and this facility will be discussed at the town hall meeting at 10 o'clock. So I would urge you to not miss out as we are praying as a congregation. We're saying, Lord, we're looking to you to provide for our future. We're trusting your will. Please stick around after the service at 10 o'clock for a town hall meeting where we, uh, Ken, um, will be discussing, giving us more details about this perspective building in Glenrock. If you have a Bible, if you would please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there should be a pew Bible as well near your seat if you need a Bible. We are in week two of a nine-week series on 1 Corinthians 13. We are going to be uh, really sitting down in this chapter, taking our time, moving through it. And uh, one of the encouragements I gave to the congregation last week, as I said, what a, what a great goal it would be if you in your own devotional life would consider memorizing this chapter of Scripture. And um, I was able to do it last week. God provided the free time, and uh, I think I got it pretty much down. And I would encourage all of you to, to memorize this chapter of the Bible. It's a beautiful chapter of Scripture. And so what I'm going to do is, for our next eight weeks as we are in 1 Corinthians 13, even though we're basically going to be moving verse by verse, I'm going to read the entire chapter each week. And it's a chapter that we're very familiar with, but uh, don't miss out on the beauty, the, the lyrical nature almost of this description of love. This is the Word of God, and this uh, scripture will be on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many things in this life will pass away. But your word says that love will never pass away. That love never fails. And so we pray this morning as we start to dig into this amazing exposition of love that is both beautiful and incredibly practical as well for our lives. That you would show us the most excellent way of love. That your love would not simply be something theoretical. It would not simply be something that we know about. But rather, as Jesus himself modeled perfectly, love will be something that we put into action. This is love. Not that we love, but that you first love us. Lord, this is love that you would lay down your life on the cross for us. Jesus perfectly lived out love, expressed love. And we pray that the love of Christ would overflow in and through us to you and to a world that is so desperately in need of love, in need of purpose, in need of direction. And so we pray this morning and we ask for the leading of your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would be our teacher, that I would simply be a vessel used of you, Lord, this morning to communicate your truth. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, uh, last week as we... uh, We really set up the series. We talked about the Corinthians. We talked about some of their problems, right? We mentioned that, um, you know, maybe there could have been a successful reality show keeping up with the Corinthians. Uh, Praise God, reality TV wasn't invented yet. But they were obsessed with the supernatural. They were obsessed with tongues and with healing and with prophecy. And some of these things we say, look, I'm not even sure I know what that means. And so this week, we're actually going to be drilling down into tongues itself. What is tongues and how does tongues, how does the gift of tongues relate to, uh, to the church today? So Paul, knowing his audience perfectly well, immediately as he's introducing this topic of love, he immediately uh, raises the Corinthians' favorite gift, this gift of tongues, and he says... If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And we say, what does this mean? What does it mean to speak in the tongues of men? What does it mean to speak in the tongues of angels? That's what we're going to get into this morning. Three points from our text. First of all, what about the supernatural? What do we do with the supernatural today? Um, I want to start out by saying this. You see it on your screen. We live in what one scholar calls a disenchanted world. All right. Uh, the last time I checked, Disney was doing very, very well uh, in terms of movies and, and, and in terms of the company itself. And Disney makes good movies a lot of the times. But I can't help but wonder if part of the reason that um, we love Disney 
And part of the reason that we love going to see a Marvel superheroes movie is not just because it's entertaining, but because the world that we live in, there's not, everything supernatural and special has been removed out of it. We grow up, even though many people today still believe in God, the vast majority of people believe in God, we live in a world today that basically says what's real is, is this podium. And what's real is only what science can categorically prove to us. The world has been disenchanted in so many ways. And, um, and so when we see something that is amazing, when we see something on the movies that's supernatural, uh, we're, we're drawn to it. We're interested in it because our world is, uh, ev- everything supernatural has been removed from our world. And that's just the water that we swim in. That's the air that we breathe. But we need to realize that historically speaking, a world with no God and a world with nothing supernatural and a world where everything is always perfectly following the laws of physics is a worldview that is actually very, very novel. For most, if not all of human history, people have believed that there is more to life than just our our clothes, our bodies, what we see, nature, that there is actually a, a supernatural realm that interacts with the natural realm that we can see. I wonder, are any of you Sherlock Holmes fans? Um, uh, maybe some of you are Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes fans. Okay, that counts too. Um, maybe some of you have read, I don't know if any of you have read Sherlock Holmes, uh, written by uh, Conan Doyle. But if you don't know Sherlock Holmes, you don't know who Conan Doyle was, Conan Doyle essentially created the modern day detective character. Okay, all of these, uh, all of our favorite detective shows, uh, Monk, or um, I, I don't know, uh, Perry Mason or Matt Locke, or you know, you, you know CSI, whatever, you pick your city. Um, all of these shows really have their genesis in the character of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, I have a few quotes on the screen. These are some of my favorite Sherlock Holmes quotes. Data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. You know, you can just imagine uh, Sherlock Holmes saying that to Watson. Or he says this to Watson. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Heaven forbid we do that. And then my favorite Sherlock Holmes quote, I am a brain, Watson. The rest of me is a mere appendix. Um, That is Sherlock Holmes. What was going on? What was Conan Doyle? You You have to know a little bit about the history. When Conan Doyle, the author, created the character of Sherlock Holmes, England was in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, okay? And imagine, um, imagine a world where you were used to, to going somewhere on horseback and then all of a sudden the steam locomotive is invented and, and now you can travel somewhere so much faster. And Holmes, as, as you see on the screen, he was raised religious. But like many people at that time, he rejected all things religious and... Uh, and he embraced all that is scientific. Sherlock Holmes was called a paragon of the Victorian faith in all things scientific. Conan Doyle created this character who was an embodiment of somebody that rejects all that is supernatural. All that is supernatural. He was, a, he was simply a mind. He was a detective who could point together all the clues and find the answer Interesting fact about Conan Doyle, the man. 
the creator of Sherlock Holmes, as he got older, found it increasingly difficult to accept a world where there was nothing supernatural. The very man who created this character who says, I'm only a brain, as he got older, started going to seances. He claimed to see dead family members. He claimed to see fairies. And by the time Conan Doyle was older, you could say that Sherlock Holmes, the character, would say there's not a more superstitious and irrational person in this universe than the person who created me. Very interesting thing to note about Conan Doyle. We weren't designed, as, as John Chung read earlier from our quotes, there is something supernatural about us. We're made in the image of God. And we weren't designed to live this life as though there is nothing but that which we see. I want to share another story with you. Uh, recently, I was, I was at work, and I, was, I, had a, I had a list of people to call. Very, very normal for my week. You know, I maybe make three to five pastoral calls a week. <clears throat> I had a name in front of me. I called up this person. Really wasn't sure what to expect. Hey, this is Josh from Grace Redeemer Church. I proceeded to then hear one of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard. The person actually basically said, Hi, Josh. Um, I want you to know something. Two months ago, I was an atheist. Now I'm a Christian. Okay, those are the best phone calls, right? That's, you, just, you can't start out a phone call better than that. It's like, okay, let me get my popcorn and a soda and get comfortable because I really want to hear what happens next. And I'll tell you, what happened next was simply a remarkable, this person's own story. Um, this lady was living in New York City and not looking for God, an, a, a self-described atheist. And all of a sudden, various coincidences began to happen in her life, which she said, wait a second, this is one too many coincidences, okay? Somebody is getting my attention God is getting my attention, and uh, if I could go through the coincidences, you would be amazed. One of them includes getting locked out of her apartment and ending up spending the night with a neighbor who she hardly knew, who happened to go to Redeemer, who happened to have some Tim Keller books, and and, and began sharing the gospel with this lady. Um, The story just gets more and more remarkable, and all of a sudden, she she starts reading the Bible. Let me tell you something. If you're not a Christian... Um, You better be careful if you start reading the Bible because you don't know what God's going to do there. And what God often does with people is he saves them because the Bible is the word of God and it's, it's God's eternal truth and it contains the gospel. And so she started reading the Bible. Guess what happens? She gets saved. And, and she's on the phone with me and she's literally saying, I believe in Jesus. Now, what do I do next? Right? Because, because this is someone who has no church background, who wasn't looking for God who God, in in his perfect wisdom, reaches down and grabs this person out of a life living for themselves and says, you are mine, and I'm going to get your attention in a way that nobody can deny. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, obviously, we have the food says in his heart, there is no God. And um, believe it or not, I'm just reading my own typo right now. Um, and uh, 
Maybe there's some truth there as well. If, if uh, I'll, I'll let you guys decide. Um, and I'll have to think about correcting that between services. The food says in his heart. Um, we actually have these slides uh, uh, spell checked, but uh, we missed this one. The <laughs> How about this one? And hopefully this one's right. God has set eternity on the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3. Let me, uh, let me raise this question for you. Is it possible to be a Christian and live like an atheist? I think without question, we have to say to that, yes, yes. It's possible to truly know God. Some of you, it's been so long since you've had that experience of coming to Jesus that so much has become mundane in your life. Is it possible to be a Christian and yet to basically say, well, anything supernatural or anything that I can't explain or anything that doesn't perfectly, you know, something happens in your life and you immediately say, well, okay, maybe that was God, but maybe that was also because this happened and this happened and this happened. And we're so quick to give explanations, aren't we? Whether it's getting over a sickness whether it's maybe something happens financially, God provides for you. Maybe something happens in a relationship. And we're so quick to say, well, yeah, maybe that was God, but maybe it was this, that, and the other two. And it's so easy to remember that there's so much more to this life than what we're seeing right now, right? If, if we could just pull back the curtains between this world and the world to come, we would, we would certainly all just be completely astounded and speechless at the fact that we live in a world where the supernatural and the natural is really overlapping and aren't, we just don't have the eyes to see it. But God sees it. Is it possible to be a Christian and live like an atheist? The answer is absolutely yes. And that is the lead-in for this gift that Paul talks about called tongues. This gift called tongues. What, what do we make of this gift called tongues? What do we make of the fact that Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, I promise we won't get too technical here, okay? There will be a test at the end, but we won't get too technical here. Um, first of all, there's a Greek word, glose. The word literally just means tongue. It means language, dialect, or speech. And today there are, there are two primary views about this gift, this gift of tongues. One is the view that tongues is only human languages, xenoglossia. That the gift of tongues is simply speaking unlearned human languages. We see this at Pentecost, all right? The apostles are there. People are gathered around. And all of a sudden, the scriptures say, everyone hears in their own language. So the gift of tongues then becomes simply the ability to speak a language that you, you have not learned. It's a miraculous gift. Now, there's others who say that the gift of tongues is xenoglossia and glossolalia, which we would say we would possibly see this in 1 Corinthians, speaking, and, and here's one way to define that, speaking in verbal patterns that cannot be identified with human languages. In other words, the tongues of angels. 
um, a, a language that perhaps is more than just a human language. Um, now, how do we understand this? Well, first, let me give a, let me give a definition of the gift of tongues. And uh, we won't spend too much on this, but uh, this is an issue of the Bible, and I would hope that you would be equipped to have a conversation with a fellow Christian or maybe a non-Christian about what tongues is. So here's, here's a definition of tongues. Tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit to speak in a language one has not learned or does not understand. That definition, actually, if you think about it, would cover both views of tongues. Whether or not, whether or not you, you believe that tongues is simply the ability to speak a human language, like if I just started speaking Russian to a group of Russians and all of a sudden they were able to understand the gospel or some other truth about God. Or that tongues is a language in which a person is able to speak a heavenly dialect to God. Either one would fit that definition. So which one is it, Pastor? Xenoglossia or glossolalia or both? And uh, my personal view is that Scripture points to both of these things being under the same rubric of the gift of love. There's no question, no one disputes that in the book of Acts, the apostles are given the ability to speak other languages that they themselves have not learned. There's actually a long list of different people groups in the book of Acts, and, and, and researchers know that these various people groups spoke a wide variety of languages that the apostles themselves would not have spoken. So there's no question that tongues in part means the ability to speak a language that you have not learned. But I also think, especially if you go later into 1 Corinthians 14, and I'll just read a verse. It's right in the next chapter. Paul says this, Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 14 too. Also, Romans 8 says the Spirit speaks in, in, in words and groans that we cannot understand. Some people think that's a reference to tongues as well. It could be. Th- this would be my answer. Um, my personal view is that the gift of tongues is both things. And that when it refers to glossolalia, this ability to speak a heavenly dialect, it's referring primarily to a prayer language. Um, that as someone is praying, they are able to pray to God in, in a way that defies human, with human words. It, it's a way that defies human languages. And um, some of you here, I, I've never asked anyone here, but you know, Perhaps if there was a show of hands, perhaps if I said, does anyone here speak in tongues? Perhaps some of you would, maybe someone would raise their hands and say, I have the gift of tongues. And uh, I would not immediately you know, condemn you or say, no, I don't agree with that. Um, but it seems from, from Paul's uh, description that it's primarily a private prayer language between a Christian and God. There's two views you see them on the screen. Well, we won't spend much time here. Continuationist says the gift of tongues still continues today. A cessationist says that the gift of tongues is no longer available to any Christian today, that it was simply there for the apostles. And I would label myself a cautious continuationist. Why do I put the, the word cautious? I put it there because I do think there are a lot of abuses of the spiritual gifts today. 
I would say if you're looking for um, evidence of the gift of tongues, I wouldn't recommend that you turn on your television and, and watch a preacher who may own three jets and is desiring that you give to their ministry for healing or for some other spiritual gift or something like that. There are certainly abuses. Nevertheless, I don't see evidence in Scripture that this gift has ceased. Why does it matter? Do you know this, church? Do you know there's over 600 million charismatics, charismatic Christians in the church today? That's over a quarter of all those who profess Christ today would identify themselves as charismatic. Pentecostal, by the way, is a denomination that falls under the rubric of charismatic. There's over 25%. Well, what is Paul's concern? Paul's concern for his church, and the same thing applies to us, whatever your spiritual gifts are, is Paul says, look, some of you may have the gift of tongues. He makes it clear that not everyone has the gift of tongues, by the way. That's an abuse as well if a church says, well, everyone should have the gift of tongues. Paul makes it clear that not everyone in Corinth had the gift. But he makes it clear that the goal should be edification. All right, I'm just going to read one more verse from chapter 14. In chapter uh, 14, verse 19, he says this. And this is an astounding statement from Paul. Paul says, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Think about that. Think about what Paul is saying. He says, I'd rather speak five intelligible words. Jesus loves you. I can't even say this I know because I'm going to be out of five words. (laughs) Jesus loves you, Paul. He would rather say that to the church than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one can understand because there's not an interpreter. I think in basically the strongest possible words, Paul is, while he's not completely eliminating tongues from public worship, he is putting about as strong as uh, a fence up as humanly possible because his concern is with the edification of the body. And again, that would fit primarily if the gift of tongues, when it's not a human language, is primarily a private prayer language between a believer and God. And of course, if, if that is a private prayer language, then um, it's between that person and God. If some of you have that gift, you may be tempted to be prideful and, and, and to share with others that you have that gift. And that could be a temptation for you. I'm not going to label the whole charismatic movement, okay? Because there's 600 million Christians and I'm not a part of that movement. But those who are charismatic, a part of that movement, need to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14.40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. All right, this is sort of the, 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 the Presbyterian verse that we emblazon on all of our, above all of our office doors, okay? Um, not really, but, it's, but you, it does, Paul is talking about public worship, and he says everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And, and unfortunately, I will say, my observation of the, of the charismatic gifts today Often this verse is ignored. Now let's talk about us, church. Let me talk about myself for a minute. Because that's, that's that movement of, of the Christian church, which I don't know that well. Now let's talk about ourselves. Oftentimes, I think we need less Sherlock Holmes. I think we need less Sherlock Holmes in our faith. Less data, data, data. Less, I'm a brain, Watson. The rest of me is an appendix. 
In other words, I just need to know facts about God and that's basically all that God wants for my Christian life instead of I'm in a living, vibrant relationship with God and what will you do if God shows up in your life in a powerful way? That's a question to ask yourself. Do I even believe that God could show up in my life in a powerful way after he has already saved me? Of course, that is the most powerful way of all. It's when God saves a person. You're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But do you, do I, have room in our relationship with God in our, uh, to, to, to say, well, God, maybe he would call me to do something extra, you know, totally out of my box at some point. Maybe he would call me to, to go into the mission field or to go on a mission trip or to support a missionary. Maybe he would call me uh, to move my family to a certain place. Maybe he would call me to, to, to change jobs or to, or to not take promotion or to do something or another for his kingdom, and, and he would make that very clear to me. Do we even have a, a box, you and I, do we even have room for that in our faith? church, I think we should because God works in power. I want to say this. We're united around the gospel. Um, these extraordinary spiritual gifts, whatever our view of them is, and some of you may disagree with me on my view of tongues, that's fine. We're united around the gospel. And the gospel says, look at Jesus, not look at me. That's what the gospel says. Look at Jesus. And what the Corinthians were obsessed with is They were obsessed with these amazing spiritual gifts, but the problem is the spiritual gifts were just drawing attention to them. They weren't drawing attention to Jesus. Let let me end with this. The point of tongues. Paul says something pretty remarkable here. And, and And he says this because he's sort of setting the table for... Uh, a further discussion of love, which we're going to get into in in future weeks. He says, tongues, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, again, an extraordinary gift. It's a gift that I would say I've never experienced myself. I've never seen someone who who had this gift. I've heard about it from, from believers. If I have this gift, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The image of resounding gong is simply a gong. You know, we all know what a gong sounds like. It's just hollow. It's not beautiful music. A clanging cymbal, a cymbal was an instrument that the pagan cults used to use in their worship. They would, they would shake their cymbals. And Paul's making two points here. He says, look, the gift without love it's just like white noise. It's just like static. Static. Is there anything worse than when, uh, I don't know if this happens anymore, but I'm old enough to remember this. You would turn on your TV and something wasn't right, and it was just, you know, just the static. I don't know if static still happens these days. But, um, you know, you can hear it on the radio. You can still find static somehow if you need to identify with this. Okay, um, go between the station. Uh, tongues is like static. Instead of, Something that is beautiful, like beautiful music, like, we, like the, the, the music that we sang this morning. You know, sometimes the worship team, I find myself uh, worshiping God 
even between the lyrics, when there's just a solo and, a, and John's playing the piano or someone's playing a solo or during an offertory, you just hear beautiful music. You feel edified by it. Paul says tongues without love is static. On the other hand, that which edifies, although it may be way less cool or amazing than tongues, is beautiful. Paul is setting the table to say this. On the one hand, God does work in extraordinary ways in our lives. I hope you believe that and I hope you're open to that. But on the other hand, the way of love is often mundane. It's often painful. It's often thankless. You want to be a person of love? You're going to find that often the love that you express to others is mundane. It's painful. It's thankless. Love, by definition, doesn't want the bright lights. Later, we're going to get into this. But Paul says, love is not proud. It is not self-seeking. Love delights in anonymity, being anonymous. That's what love likes, not being known, out of the spotlight. And we struggle with that. We, We struggle with being anonymous. We struggle with not drawing attention to ourselves. And part of the reason is, is because we make people so big in our lives. There's an author, Ed Welch, who says this. The fear of man can be summarized in this way. We replace God with people. God must be bigger to you than people are. Do you want to be a person of love that is willing to, to not get a thank you when you love that is willing to do the mundane thing over and over and over again, that is willing to go through the pain of love. Relationships are painful, right? We know this. We hurt the people we love the most because we're sinful. We need a vision of God. We need the God's love to fill us so that we can engage in the oftentimes mundane, painful, thankless, not supernatural uh, in terms of its expression, work of love. You see, God's grace liberates us to love. God's grace liberates us to love because when we're filled with God's love, when we're living for God's smile, then we're able to say, whatever else is going on in my life, whatever else someone thinks of me, I'm able to love because God's love is what is ultimately what's driving me. God's love is what matters. It doesn't matter if I have tongues. It doesn't matter if I have this gift or that gift. It doesn't matter. Paul says, Paul says if I'm in plenty or I'm in want, if, if, I'm, if I'm clothed or if I don't have clothes, if I have this or I don't have that, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As we prepare to get into the heart of love, May God show us that so often we're looking for, for that which draws attention to ourselves, to the supernatural, to that which is proud and self-seeking. But may God give us a heart of love for him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love, your boundless, matchless love for us. Lord, help us to see that whether we Speak in the tongues of men or of angels. If we have not love, it is meaningless, Lord. 
So give us your love, a love that comes only through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.